Welcome to another edition of Capital Cast. I'm Jennifer Fuller. The Illinois legislature opens its fall veto session on Tuesday, October 24th. Lawmakers will meet for two weeks, addressing unfinished business from the spring session, along with additional matters that have come up in the intervening months. In this episode, we're joined by the Capital News Illinois team, Bureau Chief Jerry Nowicki and reporters Hannah Meisel, Andrew Adams, and Peter Hancock. Let's take things from the top, and Jerry, I'll start with you. There's been a lot of talk about the budget surplus, roughly $700 million from last year's state budget. There's even speculation about what this year's budget might provide if estimates and trends continue in the same direction. So what are lawmakers' options here? Yeah, so there's been a lot of hope that there'd be some type of supplemental spending plan, especially for uh, the city of Chicago and the Chicagoland area to deal with migrants being bused here from uh, border states like Florida and Texas. But uh, frankly, the speaker and the governor both indicated they are not having discussions on a supplemental spending plan, and we're not going to see one in the fall veto session. So what I think we're seeing here is there's a wait and see approach. Revenues are still doing okay, uh, keeping pace with the expectations, but there's still three quarters of the fiscal year left. So I think Uh, It's just uh, we don't want to send too much more money out the door than we've already promised. Let's wait and see how this goes before we uh, start writing more checks. So if we see supplementals, that's likely to be in the spring session, I would guess. So perhaps if there's nothing this session, it's not so much a no as a not yet? Yeah, I would say so. Certainly. Uh, Peter, you've been writing about the Invest in Kids Act. That's set to end in December. If people um, are unfamiliar, it's a law that was created several years ago. It created a tax credit for people who donate to scholarship funds or private and parochial schools. So what's at stake here and what's the current conversation? Well, this was part of a bargain back in 2017. You'll remember that um, the state was dealing with the budget impasse and lawmakers wanted to overhaul the way schools uh, were funded and to increase school funding generally. But they needed Republican votes to get past uh, Governor Bruce Rauner's veto. And so this was kind of a bone that they threw to Republicans and to school choice advocates. It's not the state giving money directly to private and parochial schools because there would be some constitutional issues there. But if you or I give money uh, to a scholarship fund, then the state would give us a tax credit. Uh, uh, It's a 75% tax credit, and it's capped at $75 million statewide. Uh, And they put a sunset on it after five years. This marks the end of that five years. And now the Democrats don't necessarily need the Republican votes to get money for school finance. And so there are conversations going on. Uh, It's a very popular program. Uh, The polls show that it has pretty broad-based support uh, up and down the state. Uh, And so there are conversations going on about maybe reducing the maximum amount uh, from 75 million down to maybe 50 million and putting incentives in there uh, so that the scholarships target the most needy uh, neighborhoods, most needy communities in the state. Do you see a lot of uh, opposition or or need for negotiation here? Is this something that will easily move? 
Well, there are some people who are philosophically opposed to the idea. I mean, even though the state is not giving money directly to these schools, it is foregoing tax revenue that it would otherwise get uh, tax revenue that could go to public schools. Uh, so some people have a philosophical objection to this. Other people think that it's a way to uh, make elite education more available to uh, lower income, more disadvantaged communities instead of it being only available, you know, to the privileged classes. Uh, so there are philosophical arguments on both sides. Sure. Another issue you wrote about earlier this year, just within the last several weeks, as a matter of fact, is this potential for legislative staff, particularly in the speaker's office, to unionize. There's been some question over whether that was even possible because of special conditions that apply mainly to the General Assembly and its staff. But things have changed since last year's constitutional amendment. So can you tell us where we're at now with this issue? Uh, yeah, this was kind of interesting. Uh, the voters last year approved a constitutional amendment that basically enshrines a fundamental right of employees to organize and engage in collective bargaining. And Speaker Emanuel Chris Welch was all behind this. All of the Democrats were all behind it, and it passed. And so now we have uh, members of the legislature's own staff saying, okay, hey, what about us? Because if you look at the state's labor laws, um, it governing public employees, whether you're in a school district or a city or a county or the state, there are certain groups of employees who are carved out uh, who do not have a right to unionize, and that includes legislative staff. And so it was kind of a bad optics for the people who supported the constitutional amendment. And so now Speaker Welch has introduced a bill himself uh, that is going to get a hearing early in the uh, veto session that would give legislative staff the authority to unionize and engage in collective bargaining. And that is something that uh, everyone pretty much expects to at least run, if not pass overwhelmingly, correct? Well, yeah, I mean, the speaker has put his uh, strength behind it. So I think there's a fairly good chance it'll get through the House. Uh, the big question is whether it'll get through the Senate. Uh, when this, when the speaker first introduced this bill, uh, we wrote to the Senate president's office, Don Harmon, and their response was, hey, this is the first we've seen of it. We'll take a look at it. But they didn't really have much of a response at that time. Certainly something to continue watching over. Hannah, you wrote just last week about a renewed effort to update the state's order of protection laws, particularly when it comes to gun owners and domestic violence. So can you walk us through what the changes are and whether the changes have the support that they'd need to pass? Right. So this is a bill that would clarify several parts of existing Illinois law. Um, this is something that if I get an order of protection uh, against someone who is abusing me, uh, that would be specifically a domestic violence order of protection. Um, and if I wanted, I could petition a judge for one of 18 remedies. And one of those is called the firearm remedy, where I would ask the judge, hey, you know, my abuser has guns and I would like to see that they are taken away. Now, Anytime anyone is hit with an order of protection, no matter if it's domestic violence or, uh, you know, any other type, 
their FOID card, their firearm owner's identification card is automatically suspended. So technically they shouldn't have guns. Uh, you know, they're supposed to sign them over to the Illinois or to someone else with a valid FOID card in the Illinois state, state police is supposed to kind of watch over that. Uh, however, right now, you know, that is a kind of unclear process. And so the idea is to clarify, you know, several parts of Illinois law, you know, including how soon someone should be, um, you know, made sure that their firearms are signed over. Or if I specifically ask for that firearm remedy in my petition for an order of protection, then this law would clarify that within 48 hours that a judge approves the order of protection, uh, law enforcement would have to, you know, go and confiscate that person's guns, uh, you know, for as long as the order of protection is in place. Uh, ideally, when the person is served with the order of protection. This was, uh, you know, an element of a broader gun bill that House Democrats had passed in the spring. Uh, it didn't quite make it over to the Senate, uh, just a lot of things going on um, at the end of May, at the end of the legislative session there. But over the summer, um, a Chicago woman was brutally murdered. Uh, her uh, husband was charged with her murder and her 15-year-old daughter's murder and attempted murder of her 18-year-old son. And this was just a few weeks after uh, she had um, gotten an order of protection against him. And so that her name is Karina Gonzalez. And so the bill has been named uh, Karina's bill in her honor. There are certain things that uh, the sponsors still need to work out, like where local law enforcement would actually store the uh, firearms that are confiscated and how uh, communication will work between local law enforcement and the Illinois State Police, which of course is, is watches over the FOID card uh, registry. But it does seem like Democrats um, have a pretty good shot at passing this. Republicans, uh, you know, they had objections to this being a an unfunded mandate basically on local law enforcement. And um, some even worried that, uh, you know, if it made it easier for a person's guns to be taken away by law enforcement, that some people would uh, abuse the order of protection law. It's certainly probably something that has a lot of complexity that will have to be worked out. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, won't make it through in the veto session, but it's it's got more time in the next several months. Another issue that uh, lawmakers are working on, they didn't advance a bill earlier this year in the spring session that would strengthen regulations on things like Delta 8 and other cannabis products. Now, people may remember that Illinois decriminalized the use of cannabis uh, within the last several years, and a lot of people are taking advantage of that. So what's going on with these regulations and these specific products? Right. So Delta-8 is a synthetic cannabis-derived product that um, allegedly you know, provides a more mild form of high without some of the side effects that people sometimes report, like anxiety. Uh, but the problem is uh, a lot of the Delta 8 products that have been, you know, exploding on the scene, both in officially dispensaries and places like smoke shops, which are, you know, kind of famously uh, not super regulated, uh, have very questionable quality. And so uh, the FDA, the Food and D Drug Administration, has received a lot of reports over the last few years of people getting sick after uh, consuming these products that 
uh, you know, probably don't weren't made with the highest quality ingredients, or quality control. And so uh, the idea here is that uh, some Democrats, they want to regulate this substance and other uh, kind of similar hemp derived uh, products, while some in the cannabis industry would like to see Delta-8 uh, totally banned. Um, this, you know, try the debate between banning it and regulating, and if you regulate it, how to regulate it, uh, that was one of the big factors that a, a larger cannabis regulation bill didn't move this uh, past spring. That bill uh, would have done other things like allow dispensaries to do drive-throughs and also increase the amount of space that craft growers could have to kind of cultivate their plants. But so state rep uh, LaShawn Ford, he um, wants to take this piece out, the Delta-8 regulation and kind of run it, on, run it on its own. So we'll see what happens there. When in doubt, simplify, of course. So yeah, that's definitely something to keep an eye on. We should also let people know as they're listening that all of these stories are available at capitalnewsillinois.com. All of our coverage, including some of the things that came up in the spring, faltered for a while and maybe you're coming back, you can find all of those stories again at capitalnewsillinois.com. So unlike some of the other issues previously discussed, the next couple actually have to do with vetoes, which sometimes is a bit unique during the veto session. Andrew, you've spent a lot of time writing about energy issues, and it looks like that'll continue this veto session. Governor J.B. Pritzker vetoed legislation, which would have lifted a decades-old moratorium on new nuclear construction in Illinois. Will lawmakers vote to override? Of course, it's hard to tell exactly what lawmakers will do before they do it. Uh, the measure uh, sponsored by Senator Sue Rezin, a Republican from Morris, did pass with wide enough margins to override a veto if everyone voted the same way on an override vote. Although she's indicated to me that she's not certain the bill will be called. Uh, part of her response to this has been introducing a new bill, uh, which actually contains identical language to her original bill before it was amended as part of negotiations in the spring session. Uh, she said that this will be a way to continue the conversation, even if the override vote is never called by legislative leadership. People who are unfamiliar, the moratorium came about some 40 years ago, and it had more to do with the storage and and um, disposal of spent nuclear fuel than the actual power plants themselves, correct? Yeah. The issue uh, when the moratorium uh, was passed in the 1980s was that the federal government has responsibility for managing the storage and disposal of spent nuclear fuel or nuclear waste. Uh, and at the time, it became clear that the, they were dragging their feet on that issue. And to this day, there is no uh, federally regulated way of getting rid of nuclear waste aside from storing it on site where it was created. Um, the moratorium would be lifted if the federal government ever did designate a disposal site for nuclear waste, although there is no indication that that is going to happen. Certainly a lot of caveats involved there. We'll keep an eye on that. On another utility issue, Governor Pritzker also nixed a provision that would have allowed existing utilities the right of first refusal when it comes to the transmission line construction, particularly in downstate Illinois. That provision ran counter to a federal competitive bidding rule. 
Is there a way for lawmakers to renegotiate this or or where do they start? Right. The right of first refusal legislation is a bit interesting because of the way it was introduced. It, it was a project of a labor union, IBW 51, and they say it's a way for uh, lawmakers to protect Illinois workers, but environmentalists and some consumer advocates have been really pushing hard against this and advocating for lawmakers to let the veto stand because they're worried that this uh, circumnavigation of federal com- competition rules will lead to higher costs for ratepayers and less competition in the energy market. Certainly. So as we continue to move through the veto session, uh, perhaps what capital watchers might know is that the things that you're not thinking about are the things that come up most often. So Jerry, I'll circle back to you as we head toward the end of, of this chat ahead of veto session. What other things will you be watching for? Yeah, I think it's there's a couple of interesting vetoes. Um, one of them is just the sponsors kind of, it ended up a unclearly drafted bill. So the sponsors asked the governor to veto it. So there's small stuff like that. But I think one of the ones, most interesting ones uh, is one that sort of gives ner- uh, for-profit nursing homes tax breaks uh, within the city of Chicago. And the governor said that's more of a uh, sort of cost shift on suburban homeowners uh, when you're lessening the tax uh, burden of these nursing homes. So the nursing home lobby is pushing hard to override the governor on that. But we're going to have to see um, whether that ends up in a fight or whether it just quietly dies or what happens there. As Jen noted, we're going to have a story on this at CapitalNewsIllinois.com where you can view the other things uh, that are that could come up in the veto session. Certainly the veto session, as Jerry mentioned, runs October 24th through 26th, and then then again, November 7th through the 9th in Springfield, and you can find full coverage at CapitalNewsIllinois.com. I'd like to thank Peter Hancock, Andrew Adams, Hannah Meisel, and Jerry Nowicki for joining us on this edition of Capital Cast. You can find all of this by going again to that website, CapitalNewsIllinois.com. I'm Jennifer Fuller. 